0: Our first uh, reading from the Old Testament this morning is uh, to be found on page 836 in the Old Testament section, and it's from Ezekiel, uh, chapter 36, and starting at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field abundant so that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you shall remember your evil ways and your dealings that were not good, and you shall loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominable deeds. It is not for your sake that I will act, says the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and dismayed for your ways, O house of Israel." Our New Testament reading is uh, on page 77 of the New Testament section of the Bible. And it's from Luke chapter 11, starting at the first verse. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, Ask and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Amen.
1: Let us pray. Lord, by your grace, may these words of mine become a worthy vehicle for your word to be heard. And may we hear you. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, in the absence of an ongoing theme for visiting preachers, I thought we might look a little bit at the subject of prayer, Uh, realising, of course, that it's the first day of Lent. I'm not sure how often Baptists do Lent. Um, In Cambridge, we do tend to put the ashes on people's foreheads on Ash Wednesday, I had to stop doing that because as a Baptist I wasn't used to doing it and people taller than me used to discover that my knuckles arrived at their nose before my thumb arrived at their forehead, so I never mastered that. And I've handed that responsibility over to Anglican priests. And of course we have to fit the whole of Lent into one Sunday this term, so we mark the end of Lent in my college this evening. However, Lent has just started, Uh, so rewinding a little. Traditionally, it marks this period between Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem and him actually arriving in Jerusalem and the horrors he faced when he got there. And this prayer, which traditionally is called the Lord's Prayer, at least in the version that we find in Matthew's Gospel, is uttered when Jesus is on his way to the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9. He's got a bunch of people following him. He's been telling them, follow me. And now, on his journey to Jerusalem, he's perpetually saying, follow me. And where is he going when he says, follow me? He is on his way to the cross. And when these disciples ask Jesus how to pray, they already know that they are on their way to the cross with Jesus. So we'll look a little bit about prayer and take the Lord's Prayer in its proper context. The trouble is when you begin to discuss prayer, the biblical dynamic of prayer is buried beneath centuries of bizarre church practices that enter the popular mindset and tend to distort our notion of what prayer actually is. The most obvious idea is that when you pray, if you went to the same Church of England school as I did, the prayers would begin with, hands together, eyes closed. The idea is actually based on a medieval practice where you petition, you make petitions for your needs to your superiors because it's an honour and shame culture. And since God is your superior, you should come before him like a peasant would come before a feudal lord. Grovelling, snivelling, declaring oneself an unworthy, miserable, wretched sinner walking into church like something that God wants to wipe off his shoe. And that's how prayer is often approached. But the earliest pictures of Christian prayer were very different. The, some of the artwork that had been found in Christian tombs across the empire, or at least across the Roman world, saw the Christians not bowed down in prayer, hands together, eyes closed, but stood up, eyes wide open, with the palms of their hands facing up. I suppose the expression would be jazz hands. That's much closer to how Christians would pray. Confession was not some uh, snivelling liturgical apology for being mortally naughty. A spiritual act you had to perform at the beginning of a service of worship so that you could clean your moral slate and come to God as his equal. Confession was something very different. It's simply an attempt to tell the truth about how things are. It's about the convergence of your life and the things that you say. An acknowledgement of who this God really is to you. And it entails a public commitment ...to make that declaration with your life as well as with your mouth. Okay, so here's a a memory test. Some of you might remember a story um, that I think I've told here once before. It's a story of when I was young and I was a Boy Scout. And as we're thinking about prayer, it's a particularly apt story. I don't know if you are familiar with the Scouting movement... ...but you have a standard issue Scout... Then you have assistant patrol leaders, then patrol leaders, then scout leaders, then a scout master, and then at the very top of the tree, you've got the group scout leader. And our group scout leader was an utterly terrifying figure. Everyone was afraid of him. And when I say everyone, I don't just mean the scouts, I mean the scout leaders and the scout master were also afraid of this frightening figure, the group scout leader. But when we were away on camp, and everything was miserable and it was cold and wet and the food was horrible and I was missing my mum. I didn't go and speak to the scout leaders or the scout master when I was upset. I went straight to this terrifying figure at the top of the tree, the group scout leader. And I suppose the question is why. And the answer is really simple. And somebody can remember He was my dad. (laughs) That's almost how we approach prayer and almost how we approach worship. We've got this terrifying figure up there. We have to go to him with a battering ram. We have to wipe clean our moral slaves, which of course we can't do, so that we can then come in front of God and ask for stuff in the hope that eventually an angry And frightening God could be conned into doing cool stuff for us. But today's reading concludes with a promise, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. It doesn't mean of course that you then have unrestricted access to the Almighty whom you can then approach with your shopping list of things that you would like him to do regardless of what they are. My favourite example of the self-centeredness of Christian prayer is by a Londoner, somebody called John Ward of Hackney, in the 18th century. I'm going to read it in full. O Lord, thou knowest that I have nine estates in the city of London, and likewise that I have lately purchased one estate in Fee Simple in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Essex and Middlesex from fire and earthquake, and as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg of thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. As for the rest of the counties, thou may dealest with them as thou art pleased. <laughs> oh, it goes on. O oh, Lord, enable the bank to answer their bills and make all of my debtors good men. Give a prosperous voyage and return to the mermaid ship because I have insured it. And as thou hast said the days of the wicked are but few, I trust in thee that thou wilt not forget thy promise as I have purchased an estate in reversion which will be mine on the death of that profligate young man, Sir Jonas Lloyd. Keep my friends from sinking and preserve me from thieves and housebreakers, and make all my servants so honest and faithful that they may attend to my interests and never cheat me out of my property day or night. Amen. Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. That can sound equally like an open promise that we can waltz up to God up to his front door and make stupid self-centered demands. But the story that Jesus gives about prayer is a very different picture. The scene is a peasant dwelling in an impoverished corner of an unimportant province of the Roman Empire and in such settings economics was based upon mutual favors that you could earn credit Uh, if you did something nice for somebody else. But if somebody else did something nice for you, you were in their debt. And it's a constant cycle of exchange. The technical word for it is economic reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And you would end up in debt to some people, and others would end up in debt to you. In fact, this is what what forgiveness is really about when we read about it in the Lord's Prayer that the friend in this situation technically means nothing more than somebody who is your economic or social equal. A pagan category that refers to someone who shares your social and economic status. Occasionally, it could refer to a patron and his client, somebody upon whom you are completely dependent. But it was an economic term. And so there is a request from one friend to another and the the request is refused. I'm already in bed, the kids are asleep, go away. Sharing, Sharing somebody's status as their friend is no guarantee that you will get what you want when you go asking, seeking, knocking. But the friend who has the bread does respond with a motivation other than the robotic demands of economic friendship. The word describing his motives for getting up and giving him whatever he wants is notoriously difficult to translate. The uh, version of the Bible we heard this morning is very good in all kinds of ways but it is, uh, I don't know what you would call it, probably an interpretive disaster. To describe it as persistence, as though persistence in prayer is what is being taught here. It really is not. Not least because this suggests that you have to go into God's presence and just keep nagging and nagging and nagging until eventually he either gives you what you want or chucks a thunderbolt at you so you can roll over and go back to sleep. This is not the God of Scripture. More probably or the word refers to a lack of shame. Shamelessness is how it's sometimes translated. But to be shameless doesn't just mean um, what we tend to assume it would mean in our culture. In an honor and shame culture, to be shameless means that you are not playing the game. You are not recognizing the economic rules by which everyone has to behave. the the conventional rules for how you're supposed to try and get stuff. In other words, the friend with the bread gets up, not because his social equal has made a request, instead he gets up because he has no respect at all for social hierarchy, no respect for the pagan categories of friendship, and because he rejects the entire economic system based upon you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, The friend who gives what is requested does so because he's motivated by an alternative moral code, by simple, straightforward need. The conclusion that Jesus reaches is that we don't have to jump through hoops to address God. This is not how God functions. There are no recognised Hierarchies, no social status, no conventions of economics that determine how God Himself should or shouldn't act. He is shameless and will not recognize our cultural, economic, um, social assumptions. There is no wiping clean your moral slate to come to God, no appeal to some authority which even God Himself has to respect. God is shameless. He does not respect the hierarchies of an honour and shame culture. No complicated procedures for approaching this God. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Of course, it doesn't mean that you can ask for anything and just get it. Dear God, please can I have a brand new Porsche? No, you can't. That's an answer to prayer. It's just not the answer you might want. But the context in Luke presupposes that those who pray have not come to God with a shopping list, but they are asking for the Holy Spirit. Their prayer is based upon the desire to align their lives with his, and that's the literal meaning of confession. The prayer is for the Holy Spirit, is the prayer to become a means by which God becomes present to you, and you become a means by which God is present to other people. Those of you who listen well will have noticed that in the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's pronounced, I think, hallowed be thy name here. May your name be honoured. May your name be regarded as holy. And the reading from Ezekiel highlights precisely this legitimate sense of God's shame. God does not recognise or respect the demands of our honour and shame culture but there is a concern to safeguard the honour of God's holy name and Ezekiel saw this clearly enough that if the plight of Israel is terrible beleaguered, conquered, deported little nation defeated and downtrodden it does not reflect well on the God that they worship. If this is the God of Israel, what does a defeat of Israel say about that God that is either weak or indifferent? And so, what God says through the prophet Ezekiel is that although he's acting to benefit Israel, he emphasizes it is not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. You see, it's the same dynamic that we see inside the parable of the friend at midnight. God is not acting because he has to. He's not acting because Israel have got some access to him on account of their friendship. God is acting because of his holy name, because of his desire to remain shameless in the sight of the nations. I wonder what you make of that, given the current climate of our world today. Now we live in a context in which it's easy to look to the future with a sense of despair. We see the quality of political discourse constantly eroded. Accusations of fake news being used as a get-out clause from facing reality. But those accusations themselves having been spawned by a mainstream media that has quietly and grossly and sometimes deliberately misrepresented the world to the, uh, to the people who consume the news. Who gets to shape public opinion? Where is the God, whom is sometimes called Father, who promised to send his Holy Spirit, the spirit of communication. One of the great examples of the rhetorical, um, is the rhetorical strategy, called Gish Gallop. I don't know if you've heard of Gish Gallop. It's perhaps a term more prevalent throughout North America. If there is a popular figure who poses a threat to the interests of those in power, you don't just say, hey, that person's stand for justice is a terrible thing because it's revealing our injustice. It's it's not going to get you very far. So what do you do instead? You flood the media with repeated, unsubstantiated, vaguely generalised character assassinations of anyone that opposes your programme. And you do it in the form of sound bites. And it doesn't matter if the accusations are true, because, in order to defend against misleading accusations, you cannot use sound bites. But, in order to attack those who threaten an unjust status quo, sound bites are all you need. And in the era of Twitter, sound bites are more convincing and interesting than complex defences. Gish gallop. It's very effective. One of the strategies adopted by some of the entities associated with dare I say Cambridge Analytica who I think used to be next door neighbours and since they were based right here I presume you know all about them and have thought all about them already and I don't want to teach you to suck eggs but asking for the Holy Spirit is asking for the spirit of discernment it's asking to be shaped by someone and something other than the quiet ideologies imposed upon us all. The same thing as convincing us to believe that we are free thinkers, that ideologies are those things that other people have been sucked into. Ideology tends to be a word that we associate with people who are less enlightened than we are. They're acting in accordance with an ideology. In reality, an ideology is simply the logic in which ideas are free to take shape. And part of the context in which our ideas take shape is determined by the Lord's Prayer that we pray together. Our Father. I know know that we don't use the word Father here, and I can understand entirely why that is. But to pray to our Father, or just Father, as it is in Luke's version, is consciously and deliberately to revolve our ideology around a God who is in the business of answering prayer. Most of what the Lord's Prayer does is to reshape our worldview, our mindset, our ideology. And a lot of it was a sharp contradiction to the prevailing culture of the day. Because in the world where Jesus was speaking, there was already a Father. It was the Roman Emperor. If you know your Latin, you'll know the Roman Emperor was the ultimate father across the empire, patron to all the other fathers. The rights of a father were enshrined in Roman law and respected across all the provinces of the empire. There is a recognized patriarchal hierarchy to which you subscribe. That's how it works, that's how the economic hierarchy functioned properly. And when Jesus comes along and encourages people to pray Our Father he's recognising A, a different authority figure the God of Israel and is also subverting the recognised imperial procedure for getting things done This is a Jesus praying Our Father because he's subverting the imperial hierarchy He's inviting us to inhabit an entirely different ideology, an entirely different understanding of what makes the world tick, of who is actually running the world, of who is in charge, of who is likely to answer your prayer, and and of who is capable of answering your prayer. Finally, I'm conscious, of course, that the church here has always offered a home for those who remain gloriously unsure about the existence of God and about the existence of God as Father. And I think it's fair to say that, of course, the God of Scripture does not exist in the same way that a mountain exists or a bag of carrots exists or the Right Honourable Nick Clegg arguably exists. I couldn't help thinking of the story of the famous Danish physicist Niels Bohr. Apparently a friend of Niels Bohr um, visited his home and went to knock on his front door, and there was a horseshoe on the front door. Horseshoe being the symbol that's supposed to bring good luck. And his friend asked him, hey, famous physicist Niels Bohr, why would you, of all people, have a horseshoe nailed to your front door. Surely you don't believe that's going to bring you good luck. And Niels Bohr replied, no, of course I don't believe, uh, I don't believe it's going to bring me any luck, but I have it there because I'm told it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> this is what it means to deliberately... Con- build your ideology around the God of Israel the God that has been called Father for a very specific reason and the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to conduct an experiment to see if this God is trustworthy all this to say that there are no ideological or mental barriers that separate God from those who approach him in prayer, there is a door that will be opened. There are no cultural barriers that render God accessible only to white middle-aged men aged 18 to 55, just a door that will be opened. There are no liturgical barriers that require you to be morally cleansed before asking him for stuff. There is simply a door that will be opened. And there is no procedure, no backstage pass, no means of leverage. There is simply an invitation to approach this God. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Let us pray. Lord God, as we come to you in prayer, We thank you that we do not need a battering ram to break into heaven. Nor do we need to prove our worth in order for you to hear us. We thank you that as we come to you in prayer, we come with the priorities you taught your disciples. Simply asking that your kingdom comes ever more fully into our lives and that your name is made holy by those who claim to be your representatives. Forgive us then when we have not made your name holy whilst acting as your intermediaries. We cannot help but think of those whose lives have been wrecked by the near institutional abuses inflicted by ordained priests upon the most vulnerable members of the church. And so we pray that your name will be made holy both in the lives of victims and of perpetrators. And as we seek for your kingdom to come, the Christian cry for regime change, we cannot help but think of the horrors faced by the people of Venezuela and the moral complexities of any international intervention. And So we pray for just governance, for the kingdom of God to come for the lives of those who suffer, for those who offer aid, and for those who would seize such crises for their own gain. As we pray for daily bread, we position ourselves alongside those who do not have it. And ask for our daily bread. And ask that we might become a means by which this prayer is answered may their prayer become our prayer may the answer to that prayer become our responsibility and as we seek to be forgiven we seek for our debts to be written off as we cancel the debts others have to us Show us what it means to lead an economic life shaped by challenging debt rather than honouring it. Show us how to be responsible with what we earn, with what we borrow, with what we spend and with what we expect. Show us how to pray well in such a way that the contents of our prayers are determined principally by our relationship with you. That wherever possible, we do become the means by which you answer the prayers of others. And that people come to us to ask, to seek and to knock. That we might become the means by which your word is proven true to the glory of your name. Amen.